HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Today's You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are broadcasting to you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York City. And we're here at Roberta's Restaurant. And today I am... uh, I'm, I feel like I'm always saying that I'm excited, but I'm like legitimately very excited. We have uh, uh, two people from uh, Industry City Distilleries, uh, one of this new wave of distillers in uh, in Brooklyn. Um, as as maybe many of you guys know, there's uh, just a, a, a huge emphasis on uh, on not only local foods now, but now in in New York City, we're able actually to get local wines, local beers, and uh, relatively recently, some really outstanding local uh, local spirits as well. Um, these guys, uh, we're, I'm here with Peter Simon and Zach Bruner. Uh, they were both just recently awarded Forbes 30 Under 30. So congratulations, guys, and, and oh, welcome, uh, welcome to you. In the Drink. Um, so please tell me, tell me and tell all of us a little bit about how you got started, what made you want to uh, not only... Um, start a distillery, but uh, but build one from scratch, which I think is uh, crazy and amazing. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, well, first of all, thank you for having us. Uh, really excited to be on the show. Um, really, you know, vodka and distilling in and of itself is a pretty interesting challenge. You know, we really wanted to make a spirit that we would be proud of, and vodka itself is actually a really hard challenge. Um, it is a product that you can't um, mask with flavors. It's a product that you're not aging. So to actually get a great spirit, you really need to put the time and effort into both the fermentation, the distillation, the blending, uh, which we're doing. So we kind of had to take a step back and say, what are the systems that we have to build? And that was really the exciting part because, you know, we come from uh, a myriad of backgrounds, um, Zach is actually a machinist. Uh, Dave went to art school, but is like an engineer, bio- biological person. 
So kind of taking a step back and saying, well, what systems do we have to build to get the product that we want? And that was just a really fun challenge. But I'm sure you're able to purchase a lot of these, a lot of this equipment. Why do you feel that it was important to actually build? If you guys go to go to the website, um, what what is that website again? Your website? Oh, sure. It's uh, drinkicd. Drinkicd. You can see the whole process of how they how they built it together. One of the things that I really like about about your website as well is um, is just how how photographic it is, how how detailed it is, um, and you see really what what went into it. I feel like a lot of spirits websites are are more about lifestyle, and sure. I, th- I feel like you guys make uh, you make the the nerdiness of it and <laughs> the artisanal craftsmanness of it uh, very cool. Um, which is which is something that I think is uh, is really unique to to uh, to the spirits category. Yeah. Well, the project itself is kind of crazy, and as you said, and so we figure the best way to showcase that is to put sort of show people exactly what we're doing and let them figure out from there whether that's something that they are, are curious about, interested in, want to be involved in, and it seems like it's worked out all right so far. So t- tell us a little bit about how that. Uh, how did you go about it? What was your first step? What was the first piece of equipment you tried to, to buy or build? And what, what was everything that, that it took to get this off the ground? So all distilling uses stills, obviously. And so the first step is to look for a still. What we did was try to figure out what we would actually want in a still. And the quality we're looking for is a high degree of separation of the chemical components of alcohol. And so that's given usually by very, very tall stills with lots of copper plates. Uh, they're called plate column stills. And, but that only gives you up to the number of plates that you can stack. Each plate takes a certain amount of height, and so that's why you see a lot of distilleries have 20, 30-foot knockouts in their ceilings and big skylights to house these massive copper stills. It turns out that you can do the same thing with small pieces of stainless steel or other materials, but stainless steel works nicely because it's cleanable. Uh, and so we have what's called a packed column. And we actually tried to, we priced out getting one from a couple of different places. Therefore, the degree of separation we're looking for is mostly used in the scientific community. It's actually thought of as being overkill for beverage, but it gives us a huge amount of control over the discrete flavor components in the final product. And so what we did was looked around at existing designs, figured out where, basically how they could be made simple enough to prototype and built our first uh, batch fractional reflux still called Beulah. Sounds easy. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of uh, stainless steel welding and uh, a lot of glass and monkey around. Much easier to say than to do. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's a component of of, uh, you guys actually building it out and then once Mm -hmm. everything's built... You had to actually know how to distill. How did how did the mm-hmm. how did the distilling expertise? I mean, there are schools people trained for years to, yeah. to learn how to distill. How did how did that come about? And in some ways, the learning curve on the research to build the still also meant picking up along the way what the basic operating principles were, sort of how it worked, and how to make it work better. So that was something, and plus a, a fair bit of just plain trial and error and getting things right once we had it built. And why did, why did you choose Brooklyn? It was basically the way to get a group of folks together from disparate corners. I came down from Providence for the project, and having a, a workshop in New York was pretty much the way that Dave 
who put the project together pulled me down from from there. And you, so. you, you go to the website and, and you see there's like uh, these five kind of strapping, very Brooklyn-looking, handsome young guys. I, I showed it to my girlfriend. She's like, "Oh, I like him, and I like him." <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> maybe you're not. Maybe you're not allowed to look at this website. Um, but so, what, what's kind of everyone's role at this point? So we've, um, I guess, we have Zach, who's doing our machining and fabrication. Uh, Dave, who's in charge of our fermentation and. Um, engineering and kind of improvements. So right now we're doing a big um, scaling up. Uh, Max, who's in charge of all of our production. Uh, Rich, who does all of our graphic designs. And um, I guess I'm outreach and sales and uh, kind of taking all the logistics and pretty much anything anyone else doesn't want to do. <laughs> Peter deals with people for us. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I'm, so you're basically in the uh, in the distillery and you're out on the street. Um, Peter, yeah. Peter's out talking to get talking to doing tastings, talking to restaurants. Yep, exactly. You need you definitely need that. Uh, and why did you choose vodka? It seems like vodka is a category that there there's a ton of them out there. The point of it, you know, the definition of vodka is that it's flavorless and colorless. Um, how can you make a, a unique vodka? I, I guess the the thing that's funny here is, you know, we were trying to make ethyl alcohol. And we realized very quickly that it was called vodka. And then that vodka itself had all this baggage around it. Some people love it and will swear by it. Other people will never even put it in their back bar. Um, but for us, it was really, if we wanted to make any spirit, if we wanted to actually test our equipment, the best test is if you can make a really good vodka, you could then go anywhere from there. You make really easily drinkable ethanol that has some flavor to it, but also has a pleasant sort of texture and characteristics in the mouth, it's, you can really then develop that into whatever other uh, products you want, but the base has to be good. So what, what are the other products? Are you thinking about some stuff? Are you thinking about a gin? We'll see. We really want to get this going at full production and can't make any promises in the meantime. Okay. And then uh, we're, we're staring at uh, number three right now. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Are there, is there a number one and a number two? There were both. Uh, number one was a prototype batch, sort of the shakedown runs of all of our equipment, and that got bottled for uh, limited distribution, friends, family, and, uh, and reference. And then number two is the first one that was sold in stores. And that's the one that was, we got to a consistent recipe and were able to make uh, a couple thousand bottles of it. And so then we ended up changing our process and actually uh, growing our own yeast in-house. So previously we'd been taking them from bricks, rehydrating them, and uh, encapsulating them, putting them to work in our continuous fermentation system. This was actually, we grew them from bricks into basically way more yeast being fed exactly what we wanted them to eat, producing uh, under the right characteristics, and then we could encapsulate those. They worked about twice as effectively and created a slightly different set of flavors, so we could no longer call it the same uh, the same number. Wow, so it's it a, uh, a local kind of ambient yeast? Is it no, a nothing, no, nothing like it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's yeast from White Labs, which pr- uh, provides yeast for a whole lot of breweries and wineries around, commercially available, uh, does really well with beet sugar, does really well with generating complex flavors from simple substances. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going for here. So you get some, some nice, uh, well, I, I won't tell you what you get on the nose and anything else. You'll, you'll taste yeah, those. That's, I mean, that's a really interesting thing about 
about yeast and, and fermentation, and uh, you, you see it so starkly in, in wine. If you're mm-hmm. to, ever to taste a, a grape or a grape juice before it's been fermented, it could taste really delicious and tasty, but not complex at all. And then after mm-hmm. it's gone through fermentation, that's that's when you get all of those really unique characteristics. And people say, "How could you taste that in wine?" And that mm-hmm. all that that all comes from fermentation. Um, yeah. So that's really exciting. So what are what are the base uh, materials that you use for the vodka? For this, it's just granulated beet sugar. Just granulated beet sugar. Mm-hmm. No no grains. Nope. No, we we actually um we made the conscious decision when we started that we didn't want to have to worry about uh, a waste stream. So it's actually beautiful. We get beet sugar in, and we actually have no waste for the process. Um, any alcohol, well, the beet sugar goes through and is converted entirely to alcohol. And then any alcohol that we distill that we don't actually use, we're either actually using in the shop as solvent just to clean things up, or we actually have a, a kitchen stove that burns off excess alcohol and essentially makes our lunch. Uh, so it, it's really nice because, you know, if we were upstate somewhere and, you know, we had pigs to feed, you know, waste grain, you know, then you kind of have a full cycle. But a lot of this for us is a, um experiment in efficiency. So how can we make this process and have as little waste as possible, make it as efficient as possible, and keep on developing and getting better and better at it. Yeah, basically, how can we be conscientious urban distillers, mm-hmm. which is tricky. And then, so what, what are some of the, the real positives about distilling in an, an urban city, and then what are some of the, the challenges that come along with it? I mean, it's, it's great that I can hop on a subway and 10, 15 minutes be at a location that's selling our product. Uh, and it's great that in the Brooklyn and Manhattan region, there's, you know, like 5,000 bars, liquor stores, you know, liquor selling areas. Um, yeah, it, we're, it, we're adjacent to a huge market, which is great for both. We get tours on sun, tours Sundays at 4. Come by if you want. Email tours at, at drinkicd.com. Um, so tours we, at drinkicd.com every Sunday at 4 p.m.? Every Sunday at 4 yep. p.m. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, it's a good time, uh, and so that's nice. Just we can get all sorts of people through. People can visit from. You know, there's a, there's a large pool to draw from in terms of people, in terms of interest, and in terms of potential sales. Uh, on the on the downside, it's really expensive. Uh, real estate's expensive. Water's expensive. Electricity's expensive, mm-hmm. and getting rid of waste is expensive. Yeah. And when you were, when you were actually choosing the physical space, what were you what were you looking for? What was necessary? Well, we looked we looked pretty extensively actually when, when we first started, um, kind of all around the Bushwick, Greenpoint, Gowanus kind of industrial zones. Uh, we ended up in Sunset Park just because uh, the buildings down there are built kind of on a massive scale, and were actually able to give us the space that we needed, and also had beautiful windows of both uh, looking out into the harbor and also you know views of downtown Manhattan, which was great, but. You know, because we had um, a roof, because we had kind of all the facilities and all the space to actually grow, uh, it kind of seemed to be really a, a perfect space for us. Yeah. And uh, other than some of these spaces being available, what, what are some of the reasons you think that there's been this movement for, towards distilling um, in Brooklyn and, and uh, in New York City as a in New York State as a whole? I think it's a... Uh, I mean, it's very much a logical progression, and I think it's it's something that hasn't been done and is is, is rather fun to do. Um, so I think a lot of people are really uh, 
essentially giving it a go and trying to make really great spirits. It's, um, you know, we're, we're caring more and more about our food and, and no one has really looked at, or people are now starting to look more and more at what we're drinking. Where before it was, okay, I'm drinking this for the purpose of getting drunk and if it's something really nice, I'm going to have enjoyment with it. But I didn't really know the backstory behind it or if I knew the backstory it was only because of the branding or the marketing or the perception behind the alcohol. Where now I can say, okay, this is made from... In our case, beet sugar. I know where the beet sugar comes from, and I can actually kind of see the whole progression as well as all the production steps that went into it. On a practical note, uh, a couple of years back, they just they dropped the fee for starting a distillery uh, by a factor of ten, and so that, on a practical note, is responsible <laughs> for a, a big chunk of the the resurgence. Right. That. So after that yeah. happened, then everyone's like, let's. Let's get going. Let's well, get be, this yeah, it, it became actually po- you know within the the economic re- uh, realm of possibility. That so. seemed like a brilliant decision. <laughs> I think so. Uh, all right. Well, I have a, a bunch more questions for you, uh, but we're going to take just a quick break. Um, so uh, please please stay with us, and we'll be right back on Heritage Radio Network You are listening to I Get By by the Dead Stars on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Every Wednesday at noon, Dorothy Can Hamilton, founder and CEO of the International Culinary Center, interviews the top chefs in the world on Chef Story. Hear from chefs like Christina Tosi. I'm going to be the best pastry cook this restaurant's ever seen. Francis Malman. Cooking with fires, it's very feminine, it's very fragile. And Jacques Pepin. I was invited to work at the White House for John Kennedy. Learn how the greats become great every Wednesday at 12 p.m. on Chef Story heritageradionetwork.org and we're back on in the drink on heritageradionetwork.org we're coming to you live from the shipping container at roberta's in bushwick and i'm here with peter simon and zach bruner uh forbes 30 under 30 for their uh great project industry city distillery we're about to taste uh their vodka number three um, we were just talking about it. It's an entirely beet grain, uh, beet, beet sugar, beet sugar vodka. Is that is that something that is common out there? I don't think I've ever. It's it's a lot of... more common in uh, in Europe. Um, you're going to get a lot more sugar that's derived from um, sugar beets, just because you know sugar beets are grown out there extensively. Where you know here we have the choice between cane and beet. 
Wow. Yep. So even at, at, you know right on the nose, it has way more character than than, <laughs> than almost any other vodka I've had in, in quite a long time. It's actually uh, reminiscent of, of good tequila to me. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It has a mm-hmm. little bit more of like uh, uh, a vegetal and, and fruit character, and it just has character, which uh, which is uh, something that I uh, uh, rarely say about vodka. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, so even on the nose, I'm excited to uh, to taste it. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. All right. And maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit when you're looking when you're tasting a vodka, um, and you're trying to determine quality in vodka. What is what is it that you guys look for? Well, I guess for for, for the general vodkas that are out there, you're kind of looking for for burn and like where it hurts. Um, which is something that's funny because, you know, even, even when you're starting and you're saying, hey, it, it has a smell on the nose, it's something that you typically don't experience because when you, one of the, one of the good things and one of the bad things about charcoal is it essentially deodorizes. Yeah. So what, m- most vodkas out there are passed through activated charcoal, kind of like a Brita. Uh, and what that does is it actually pulls out offensive smells and tastes, but it doesn't actually do anything to the chemical compounds. It just deodorizes. So you'll actually get the same burn f- feel that you would if it smelled and tasted terrible, but it doesn't smell and taste like anything at all. And that's one of the tricky things about the sort of American tasteless, odorless vodka is it's often filtered with charcoal, which means that it can feel like a whole range of things, but doesn't taste or smell like anything at all. Wow. And so yeah, were you going for something that has... Absolutely. We're going for something that has character, but also has all the right chemicals removed so that it tastes and feels really good. And what are some of these chemicals that you're, that you're talking? I mean, you're just starting with uh, with beet sugar. Mm-hmm. How how is it that there are all these chemicals in there? Well, it's it's all about the fermentation. So yeast are fantastic little microorganisms, and they'll actually they produce alcohol from nothing but sugar, and uh, they also produce CO two, which is how we got into this whole thing. Dave was trying to make some CO two for aquatic ecosystems. That's a whole other story. <laughs> um, and so they'll actually change their environment to make themselves more comfortable. And so that means producing more or less of different esters, um, more or less of all a whole spectrum of chemicals that I'm not actually qualified to list. Um, but you can look up. Um, and so ranging from if, you, if they're really unhappy, they'll produce sulfur and sulfurous smells, which is you might notice it um, in if you walk into a place with big vats, there's sometimes a lingering odor of sulfur. Um, whole range of compounds and we try and keep them as happy as possible and making uh, flavors that we want them to and so that's what we're going for here is really capturing those they're fruit esters um, you'd get in brandies uh, again things I'm not qu- not entirely qualified to say I just make the machines that make the vodka uh, but it's it's all in the fermentation and then capturing that very discreetly and uh, and delicately and keeping that throughout the distillation process yeah. And what kind of how did you what kind of training did you have? How did you go about learning how to make machines that make vodka? Uh, <laughs> lots and lots of research. Um, I've been making things for pretty much my whole life. Uh, my, I grew up. My dad had a shop when I was growing up, and so started to use a metal lathe when I was uh, before I could drive, and have kept up with that till now. And just figuring out how you know how other people are doing it. How you, what the other research is in the in the field, what's been done before, what hasn't been done before, 
what people have tried and given up on and why and just do all the research figure out what makes sense try it see why that doesn't work and then try it again and then hopefully it will work do you do you live a very uh handmade kind of lifestyle if we were to go to if we were to go to your apartment with their would you know would you've made the the hmm. coffee table and the chairs and have some really cool way of brewing coffee that you invented and <laughs> <laughs> no ikea coffee table uh a lot of a lot of salvage i'm interested in sort of how things are built which means a lot of looking at you know picking up picking stuff up off the street that seems cool uh figuring out how it was put together and uh you know, keeping a sort of reference library of junk <laughs> i guess that's the best way to put it all right so back back to the vodka uh how would you what would you use this vodka and it's it, again it has more character i mean i i could almost drink this just as a vodka on the rocks which is certainly not my drink but i i, I could enjoy this but what would you what would your suggestion be um, I, I would certainly suggest that everyone try it neat, uh, at least to start. Um, it does have a lot of uh, flavor complexity and is enjoyable enough to actually drink straight and, you know, enjoy. Um, and then it, it really is very versatile for using uh, in mixed drinks and cocktails because it doesn't have those harsh characteristics. You essentially don't need to drown it out. And I feel like um, in popular culture, when you're thinking about vodka, you're thinking about it as a vehicle. You're thinking about it as a way for you to get drunk, and you're going to try to mask it as best as possible with cranberry, tonic, orange juice. Um, so there's a lot of fun things to do with this because it is a vodka that's a vehicle that doesn't need to be masked, uh, that also has some flavor. So we've been playing around with a lot of traditional whiskey cocktails, supplementing vodka. Um, yeah, we, the person who does tasting for us uh, right now, tea, is a, a cocktail in th- it- lover of cocktails and history culture and taste and uh she actually we asked her to put together some cocktails with this and she started out with vodka cocktails and it didn't go so well and then switched over to whiskey and brandy based cocktails which actually are pretty wonderful with this because the flavors are are more in that direction for instance uh like a manhattan old-fashioned what what kind of whiskey more, some of the older uh looking into a brooklyn uh vesper you can actually in, uh, flip the gin vodka ratios on a Vesper, and I don't actually make many cocktails at distillery, so I will leave it there. I tend, I like it just straight. You like it just straight. Uh, again, I'm not a vodka drinker. That's and where can we, fi- where can we find uh, the industry, st- industry city distillery number three? Are there retail stores, restaurants? Yeah, um, m- we're doing mostly uh, retail just because we're doing uh, limited production right now. Uh, but we're over at uh, Astor in the city, of course, uh, Barry and Vine, Park Avenue Liquors, then over in Brooklyn in um, Dry Dock and uh, Borisol, which is also Drink Up NY, uh, for those of us outside of New York. And um, let's see, Hyde Chateau, let's see if I can name them all, name them all. Uh, Juice Box. Um, I so it sounds like you're doing a good job getting it, yeah, getting it I, I, out there. I mean, it's, it's pretty great, and people have been really receptive um, to the products, which is exciting. And we're, we're now kind of in this nice transition of going from you know, making 400 of these 375s a month and actually trying to make uh, quite a bit more in 750s. So it's exciting that we're now actually getting out there again and starting to sell because um, we really do want more feedback on the product. And we want more people to be able to taste and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And we're also yeah. sorry. We're also at Parish Hall in Corzo. If you want to go to a bar and try it, so Parish, Parish Hall, Hall. And you're here in Corzo in uh, South Slope. 
All right. Tell us a, a little bit about the bot. I mean, it's it's what not uh, you know the most the most important and interesting thing is what's inside the bottle. But in uh, in vodka, I think a lot of time and energy is spent into the design of the of the bottle. Um, and yours is a decidedly simple one that that I really like. I find it very aesthetically pleasing. Um, uh, Three seventy five. Why did you go with that? We uh, we made the choice to start because we knew we were essentially running on our, um, I'd, I'd say, pilot equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we knew we were going to have limited production. We wanted to have as many people try it as possible. We also made it, a... It lets us get twice as many bottles out into the world. Mm-hmm. We, we also wanted to make a, a price choice. Uh, you know, we didn't want to sell a bottle on shelves for $40. We knew it would be a little bit more expensive when we started, so... We said, okay, let's produce a package and try to get it on shelves for $20. So that way, you know, when a consumer comes in or, or someone is looking at something to try, it's, you know, a reasonable leap for them to say, okay, this looks interesting. Yeah, it's less of an investment if you've never had it before. It's a mm-hmm. new product. Exactly. It's a new product. So is there going to be a number four? Are you going to stick with number three? There will definitely be a number four. We're still figuring out exactly what we want to be in the final blend. And so gathering feedback along the way, this is a process that we can now sort of tweak as we figure out what people are looking for in vodka. So that's on the back. There's a number. Uh, there's an, a sorry, website, icdtest.com, which you can go to. There's a little tasting application, which is a lot of fun. There's also our Twitter handle and number you can call for feedback. So if you want it to be sweeter, if you want it to be less sweet, more, uh, more on the nose, more pepper, anything, let us know. Wow. And uh, will you eventually settle on one or will you continu- continually uh, try to create new blends? I mean, it's a, it probably a bit of both. Okay. I don't think we'll event- we, we will eventually settle on one blend for the flagship product, but we'll probably still keep experimenting. I think that's safe to say. Okay. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's challenging certainly for, you know, for consumers to you know, maybe fall in love with one and then you're on to the next one mm-hmm. and you're like, oh man, I, am I going to like this one as much? Yeah. We, we have a, a couple of people who were initially dis- very disappointed that number two was no longer to be found, but uh, I think that they've now been converted over to number three. Well, so. I definitely recommend everyone, uh, uh, vodka drinkers and, and, and non-vodka drinkers, go out and try the Industry City Distillery number three. I can assure you... I do. I'm admittedly not a vodka lover, and this is delicious, and that's why I want to have these guys on because I was baffled as to how you can make a vodka that I actually that I actually really do like um, because it has character, it has flavor, and it's made locally. And you know, I, you know, we actually we, we spoke about this yesterday a little bit. We we had a little phone call, and um, it's you know you want to support local producers it's something that that you want to do as a, as a as a new yorker as a restaurateur as someone who's into food and and uh stuff that's good for the earth um but also if you're in the restaurant industry uh and even if, and if you're at home you, you also want to have good products and it's not good enough just that it that it's uh it's something that's local uh and it, you're having it just to support it you you want it to you want to be proud of what you have on your shelf and uh i think this is something that that you guys should be very proud of uh and i would certainly be very proud to serve it because it's uh, absolutely delicious awesome thank so you thanks so much. a lot uh make sure you check out their website like i said uh it's one of the most informative uh websites i've learned a ton just uh just going through it uh definitely follow them on twitter and uh tune in next week to in the drink 
on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.